Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing Dante, and specifically we're doing Daemonarchia, Dante's book about politics. If you've encountered Dante before, Dante's writing in the 1300s, in the early 1300s, early 14th century. If you've encountered him before, it's probably through his divine comedy. But Dante wrote other things. He wrote the Convivio, which speculates heavily about metaphysics. And he wrote Daemonarchia on politics. And Daemonarchia is a quite significant example, early example, of divine right of kings theory. And we're going to talk about kind of the position of divine right of kings theory in the history of political thought, uh, some of the features of Dante's version of it, and you know, its overall role in the, in the trajectory of things. So, but we'll start with Alex, and we'll start with what Alex found interesting about it. So, Alex, as you're reading Daemonarchia, what stood out to you? Well, I'm not sure how he manages to criticize the papacy while not being a heretic. I think that's a good place to start in any kind of medieval political thought. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, you have to acknowledge the role of, of the papacy, and you have to acknowledge the spiritual authority of the pope. The thing that sticks out in this period is that Pope Boniface is making a two-swords argument. He's claiming that the, the papacy has two swords, that it is dominant both in the spiritual and in the temporal realm. And the Pope's argument is relatively straightforward. The Popes crown the kings. The Popes are the ones who have a direct line to God. So authority comes from God to the Pope and then through the Pope to the kings and therefore the kings are dependent on papal authority, right? Now, that claim of the second sword is a disputable claim. As long as you acknowledge the first sword, and Dante is careful to acknowledge the first sword, the you know, Pope's authority in spiritual matters, you can dispute the degree to which the papacy has the second sword without straightforwardly being a heretic. In fact, during this period, you have a lot of monarchs openly arguing with the Pope about this because the Pope is trying to order these kings around, and these kings are not happy being ordered around. These popes during this period are trying to expand papal authority more than had been the precedent. And as they're trying to expand it, they get pushback from these kings. And if you think back to the early Dark Ages, how all this got started, you know, the, Roman, the Western Roman Empire breaks up. The Eastern Roman Empire continues. When the West breaks up, you have these new kings trying to establish new states, and they're trying to establish legitimacy. And they do this in part by converting to Catholicism, adopting the religion of the subject people, and uh, leaning on the Pope to lend them legitimacy through coronation. And you know, by having priests and in individual towns, by building cathedrals in individual towns. So for a long time, the papacy plays a very large role in helping these states secure legitimacy. And so the princes see the papacy as an ally 
in securing legitimacy. But as these kingdoms get bigger and they get, become more consolidated and more secure in the high Middle Ages, they start wanting to exercise more autonomy. At the same time, the popes get more ambitious because as their estates grow and the papal income grows, the pope starts thinking of, of his role as potentially the political center of Europe. So you have kind of, as, as things grow in the high Middle Ages, the ambitions of these former allies begin to come more and more heavily into conflict. And so Dante is entering into this debate on the side of the princes. I thought the princes back then, they still had to kind of accept that the church had authority over what Christ said. But Dante goes straight into the Bible and says, no, Christ did not mean that the church has the spiritual sword and that the temporal sword is used for the church. And he says, like, even that Peter was just looking at things superficially. So he uses... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the temporal sword has got to have its own story. So the way that Dante gets the emperors and, and, and specifically the Holy Roman Emperor out of this mess, because he's a real big fan of the Holy Roman Emperor. The way he gets the Holy Roman Emperor out of this mess is by arguing that the imperial authority also comes directly from God. And so instead of it being the case that political authority is derived from papal authority, these are two independent sources of authority, each of which comes from God. So the kings have a divine source of authority. The Holy Roman Emperor has a divine source of authority. And therefore, because his authority is divine, it's not derived from the papacy. So this is the subversive thing about divine right of kings theory. People often think of it as a kind of theocratic argument, but it's not. It's actually an argument against a theocracy dominated by the pope. It's an argument that the king has an independent spiritual source of authority that freestands the church. So it's a way from getting politics out from under the church's influence. And it's an argument that doesn't really become prevalent until quite late in the Middle Ages. Dante's writing in the early 1300s, and he is an early example of this argument, a bit of a forerunner of the later forms that it will take. Alex looks like he's having a thought, so I I thought I'd pause and let him think for, for a minute. You got a thought, Alex? Uh, not so much. I just, I, I still don't know how you can get away with criticizing the church in that time. Even if you say things like, yeah, divine authority, you know, the divine is the source of all authority. If you criticize the church, which is a political organization, you're not going to be able to say that. So I don't know how he wasn't executed or imprisoned. Well, so people think of the Middle Ages like it's a totalitarian society. And there are some features of it that, that may feel that way, especially if you're looking at it from a contemporary standpoint. But any society has to have a, a permissible range of discourse. And if you show appropriate deference to the first sword, if you show appropriate deference to the papacy's possession of the spiritual authority, you can dispute the papacy's legitimate temporal role, in part because Boniface is trying to expand papal authority beyond what was historically in force. He's trying to really boss around kings in a way that hadn't previously been done. So because of this, Boniface is in a controversial position. What he's doing is not straightforwardly in alignment with doctrine. And therefore, he has to make an argument for what he's doing, and you know, more realistically, his supporters have to make arguments for what he's doing. 
and they try. And these arguments involve this assertion that the temporal power is, is derived. But because that is, is a bold argument and not the argument that everybody's been making since time immemorial, it is possible to argue against that without being obviously a heretic. And if Boniface tried to say that everybody who defends the temporal authority of the princes is a heretic, well, he would have to excommunicate a number of princes who themselves were disputing that. He would have to excommunicate the Holy Roman Emperor, for instance. And that's a pretty high stakes game. So because this is not a, a you know, baked traditional precedent, the authority of the popes, the supremacy of the popes is something that is being asserted rather than something that has always been the case, you do get the opportunity to make a different argument. But what happens is the popes kind of overreach here. They try to press their authority further than the secular rulers will tolerate. And this results in the secular rulers coming up with a more muscular justification for their power. And what you end up with is even more power for the secular rulers than they had before the popes tried to expand their authority. So it's a kind of, it's a period of papal overreach. And then this spawns a lot of temporal political philosophy, a lot of secular political philosophy that still wants to bake in a religious justification for monarchs, but wants to get them more space to maneuver free from papal influence. Another reason for this, this emphasis is that the popes become very interested in keeping the monarchs weak during this period because the European monarchies are increasingly powerful and the popes are worried about their power. They often intervene in affairs to prevent these European states from unifying together into one single empire. They are quite aware of the situation in the Byzantine Empire. In the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, the emperors still play a very large role in church affairs, and the leader of the Orthodox Church is considered secondary. The patriarch is considered secondary to the emperor. The the Byzantines are, are what's called Caesaro-Papist. They put Caesar over the Pope. So if you get a big state like that in the West, the temporal ruler will be powerful enough to render the Pope secondary. The Popes are worried about that possibility and are keen to assert the authority and establish securely the authority of Popes to prevent that. And they also are heavily intervening in medieval politics to stop these states from getting bigger and stronger and, and unifying more and more territory. Now, this upsets Dante because Dante thinks that we ought to have a one big cosmopolitan state. And Dante is making this argument following Aristotle in thinking that uh, you know, Aristotle did not argue for a cosmopolitan state, but Aristotle did argue that there's kind of one ultimate telos or final end for human beings, that being uh, contemplation and the perfection of reason, the perfection of human knowledge and understanding. And Dante argues if there's one singular purpose for people, then that purpose can best be attained through one singular state. If you know what the purpose of human life is, then if you make one state which tries to fulfill that purpose, then you're more likely to achieve that purpose than if you have multiple different states which are competing with each other because the competition becomes an alternative purpose. The competition becomes something else that they're involved in apart from the perfection of human reason. So by getting rid of this co competition among different European states and having one empire, 
you would avoid that, allowing everybody to focus on this Aristotelian perfectionism. That's that's the thought here. What the perfectionism looks like in practice, though, not just contemplation and, and thinking about stuff, though, it's unity, isn't it? It's like human, all of humans have to be free. So there's kind of liberty here a lot as well. Like the free wills all have to kind of come together and justice has to organize things. And you can read that in a more Christian or, or a more ancient way. I'm not sure. But it yes. does make the divine right of kings seem a bit half-baked once you consider the whole Aristotelian dimension. Yeah, some people make the argument that he's following Averroes and arguing that there is a kind of singular uh, human reason that belongs to everyone that we're all participating in, that there's a kind of unity of humanity. That is an argument that Dante is not going to openly embrace if that is his position, because that position is very different from that of the Thomists, from the followers of Thomas Aquinas, who are more dominant within the Western church. The followers of Averroes are, of course, in the Islamic world. So he may have some sympathy for Averroes' interpretation of Aristotle here, but if he does, he is not going to express it directly. Uh, Why is it Aristotle that is being talked about? I I think a lot of the time when we look at this period, people just kind of assume that Aristotle's being talked about because he's always been talked about or that he's always been important. But it's worth bearing in mind that in the Eastern Roman Empire during this period, in the Byzantine Empire, Plato is the one who's being talked about all the time. In fact, it's Plato's Republic that is being constantly referenced in the Byzantine literature. But the Republic is not translated into Latin during this period. There is no Latin translation of the Republic that is widely available in the West. Uh, That's not to say that in antiquity there were no Latin translations of the Republic. There almost certainly were, but they were not preserved. They were lost. So during this period, the only bit of Plato that is in Latin is the Timaeus, actually, what, what we talked about last week, and only parts of the Timaeus, not the whole thing. But Aristotle is preserved in Latin, and a lot of Aristotle-influenced Roman thought, like, say, Cicero, is, of course, preserved in Latin. So in the West, you get a lot more emphasis on Aristotle because people can't even read the Republic, let alone make a judgment about whether they agree with Plato or Aristotle. They have very little to work with, and for the most part, when they read the Timaeus, they're just trying to bend the Timaeus to make it into an ancient justification for Christianity. They're not really interested in engaging with Platonism as such in the West during this period. You go uh, into the Islamic world, and and similarly, a lot of the Islamic scholars got really interested in Aristotle, and Averroes calls Aristotle the first teacher, and and he, of course, is the second teacher, right? Uh, Or is it Averroes or is it Avicenna? I sometimes mix those up. Who's the second teacher in Islam? No, that's Al-Farabi. Of course, Al-Farabi is the second teacher. My bad. I have to get better on my on my Islamic thought. Yeah, Al-Farabi is the second teacher, but Averroes is the one who makes the argument for there being uh, a, a united, uh, you know, singular human mind. So it's Averroes who is being discussed quite negatively by the Thomas during this period. Um, anyway, point being, in the Islamic world, there is an enormous amount of emphasis on Aristotle. And then in the Western world, because of the translation problem, there's an enormous amount of emphasis on Aristotle. And it's really only 
in the Byzantine Empire that you get this emphasis on Plato during the Middle Ages. And of course, in the Byzantine Empire, it's straightforwardly argued that you should support absolute monarchy because A, that's what you've got in the Byzantine Empire, but also B, arguing from Plato's Republic, there is really uh, no question of there being any authority put above political authority. Because if you look at the Republic, the philosopher king is very much a political figure in the Republic and not just some purely spiritual figure. Very much you know, a philosopher and a king combining these roles in one person. So that feeds very neatly into Byzantine Caesaropapism and into this idea that the Byzantine emperor is the leader of the church. So that's why Aristotle is the big figure, and that's why Dante in De Monarche is constantly invoking Aristotle all the time, constantly invoking Aristotle. Is it that different? Because political authority obviously is important in Aristotle as well. No one comes above that. I'm not sure what you're saying. So the thing that is different about Aristotle as he's taken up in this period is that Aristotle focuses a lot on the natural and the followers of Aristotle focus a lot on the natural. So out of Aquinas, you get, say, natural law theory. Uh, when you're focusing on the natural, you're looking for signs of the divine in nature, right? Because natural law theory supposes that while natural law is not as high as divine law, by understanding natural law, that's you know, the closest that you can come as a human to understanding divine law. So through your engagement with nature, you come to know the divine. This is a very important argument for justifying science in the West because it creates a basis for doing empiricism. When you're doing empiricism, you are not ignoring the spiritual. You are coming to understand God through the examination of God's works. Right? So you'll see some of the influence of this in the way Dante argues. For instance, when Dante wants to argue for the legitimacy of the Roman Empire, he points out a natural fact, which is that Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus. And if Jesus is born during the reign of Augustus, well, that can't be an accident. That must in some way signal the legitimacy of Augustus. Why would Jesus choose to be born under an unlawful emperor? That is not something that you know, a perfect and, and all-knowing and all-powerful God would do. Surely, surely the fact that Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus signals the divine legitimacy of Augustus. And since Augustus reigned many centuries before there were any popes at all, clearly the authority of the Roman emperor and therefore of the Holy Roman Emperor in the Middle Ages, is distinct from the authority of the Pope and has its own divine origin point. That's arguing from a natural fact. That's arguing from an empirical observation. <laughs> well, you could say that the condition of humanity at the time of Christ you know, saving them, the fact that Augustus decided to tax the empire, that is an empirical fact. But then saying that, well, the other fact, which is, this pleased God because it allowed God to be recorded in history as a human, as son of man. That's not really an empirical fact, is it? Or is it because Jesus is an actually existing figure? Like an empiricist well, might say this is not obviously science. D Dante, Dante thinks all of this happened. 
right? So Dante is drawing based on what he takes to be historical example. Now, of course, there are contemporary people who dispute whether the census occurred. There are some people who dispute whether Jesus was a real person, although that is a minority view. The important thing is that Dante thinks these are empirical facts. And so Dante is using an empirical type of reasoning here. Mm. And that bears Aristotelian influence. When Aristotle tries to figure out what's good, he looks around. And that's why in that, you know, the famous School of Athens portrait, you have Plato with his hand pointing up and Aristotle with his hand pointing out. Oh, yeah. Look for the good. Aristotle goes, you know, look for it. Go look. Go around and look at what's going on and look at the patterns in the physical universe and the things that have happened and try to understand it on that basis. Very different from the Platonist move, which is to try to think about abstractions and to try to get a sense for the abstraction. Do you think the fact that Dante starts with what's kind of intuitive to all people, which is, yeah, world peace is most likely the goal of humanity, and how do we achieve that? Well, it's likely to be one world government, that kind of thing. Yes. Yes, this is a very natural law type way of thinking, where you try to observe what is it that people generally do, okay? And then, of course, for the argument to accomplish anything, it can't be the case that everyone actually follows natural law. Otherwise, why would you need to say that everybody does this? If it was obvious that everybody did it and, it, and everybody did straightforwardly do it, there would be no need to argue that everybody should do it. So, of course, anytime you make this argument based on, you know, of course, everybody is this way and of course, everybody wants these things and of course, this is everybody's goal. The only reason it needs to be said is because it's not everybody's goal. And this is the, the trouble that natural law theories run into. The reason you're making these arguments is because not everybody behaves the way that you're saying is the natural way that everybody behaves. So you then have to come up with some excuse for why some people are not behaving in a natural fashion. And oftentimes the scholasticists will argue that they're evil or that they've been corrupted by in some way, that their soul has been thrown off its usual ability to know the difference between good and bad. But of course, if you make that kind of argument, you can use that argument to dismiss anybody who doesn't behave in the way that you're saying everybody behaves. And so what then happens is that people make an enormous number of different claims about what is natural behavior. Those claims increasingly over time don't fit together. And this culminates in the total collapse of, of the Catholic consensus and of natural law theory as a workable theory that can actually sustain a project. And so I, I often position this kind of take up of, of Aristotle as a poison chalice for the Catholic Church, because by taking up Aristotle, yes, the church is able to tell this powerful legitimation story for itself, which works very well in the medieval context. Yes, it is able to allow and engage with science in a way that it had a hard time doing prior to Thomas Aquinas. But the cost of it is that you now put an enormous amount of weight on this concept of the natural. And politically, your survival now and your legitimacy depends on maintaining this consensus on what is natural. And as the Catholic Church's power wanes, its ability to maintain that consensus also wanes. And it turns into an enormous number of quite dogmatic accounts of what the final human goal is. And if you have this notion that everybody has one goal, then you can build a state that's extremely authoritarian and extremely limiting 
because if everybody knows that this is our one goal, then we don't need to argue about what our goals are. We don't have to have any kind of pluralism or any kind of diversity. We can simply build the state that best achieves the one goal which everyone is supposed to have. If you have this notion that there's one human nature, one human essence that we need to realize straightforwardly, then we need one state that's designed in the right way to realize that essence. This is what you get ultimately out of this natural law theory. But I thought, so it goes goes very wrong. But I thought because it's a kind of cosmopolitanism, the moving parts of that oneness are diverse individuals. So the intellect as a whole is unified, but it can only be unified because there's so much diversity in it, you know? So... Yeah, yeah. The The issue is, you know, there are ways of framing this that make it look more totalitarian and there are ways of framing it that look more libertine. So a kind of defender of integralism, a defender of this singular Catholic notion of unity would make the case that, of course, within this notion of natural law, there is a lot of room for disagreement about particulars. So you can, it, we could all agree with Thomas Aquinas and we could all be Thomists, and yet we might have differences of opinion about how to interpret particular bits of evidence that we see, right? But we would still all be committed to a kind of overall view that human nature is about the perfection of reason and the perfection of the contemplative capacities of people, that this uh, is achieved through a particular kind of political system. Now, whether we think that's a political system that is headed by a papacy, a singular cosmopolitan papal state, or a single cosmopolitan uh, imperial Holy Roman Empire type state, this idea that we should all kind of be united together under one thing to realize a singular notion of who we are, uh, that's going to be limiting if you don't agree with elements of that. If you're not an Aristotelian, and if you're not a Thomist, you're going to have a hard time signing up to that, to the version of that that you get in the Middle Ages. Uh, and ultimately, that is what happens. Ultimately, people do have a hard time signing up to it. So yes, uh, a defender of this view would argue that you just have to agree to certain relatively uncontroversial facts about human nature. And if you just agree with those relatively uncontroversial facts, then we can all come together and there can be peace and love and and the exploration of reason. But in practice, that consensus proves increasingly untenable. And it proves increasingly untenable in part because is this something that is led by a pope or is it something that's led by an emperor? If there's going to be both, then the unity of purpose is to some degree disrupted by that, unless each one totally stays out of the other's way. But then how does each one know exactly what the limits are? And you, know, you get further out, you know, part of the reason that the Protestant Reformation is successful is that certain princes think that it is in their interest to promote Protestantism to give themselves more freedom of action. So the classic British case, of course, is Henry VIII wants a divorce. All he wants is a divorce. It's a relatively petty thing, but not from the point of view of the Catholic Church, for whom that is a, a kind of flippant divorce that's not justifiable. It's his lot to, if Catherine of Aragon can't bear him you know, sons, can't bear him male heirs. It's his lot to have to deal with that. But Henry VIII goes, I won't accept that. It's not you know, you know, something that I personally will accept, or it's not good for the stability of, of my kingdom to not have a male heir. 
And therefore, he ends up promoting Protestantism primarily as a vehicle for being able to have a divorce. And the version of Anglicanism that Henry VIII is attracted to is not altogether that radical a version of Anglicanism, because for him, the other theological questions that Protestants are raising are not central. Uh, that kind of behavior comes out of this. You get the French, for instance, promoting Protestantism in the Holy Roman Empire, even though the French remain Catholic, as a means of destabilizing the Holy Roman Empire. Sounds a lot like might makes right, not the other way around, which is confusing because Dante said that when Rome conquered the world, well, he said that he was basically, uh, he was wrong to think that Rome was won just by military conquest. Like that's a superficial way of looking at it, but it does seem that yeah, way. There, there is a lot of Roman imperial ideology that backs up the Roman project. But the trouble here is that you have a, a Europe that is still heavily fractured. It's not as disunited as it was in the Dark Ages, but it is still heavily fractured. So this, you know, having one state, the, it, you can say you want one state to achieve one purpose, but it's very unclear who's going to lead that state. There are lots of different people who think they ought to be leading it. You know, most you know, obviously during this time, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, but then also the King of France is going to be a player. Uh, and of course, you get the Avignon Popes, the Popes who are located in France, this kind of alternative sets of Popes that have a relationship with the French kings. Uh, so, you, you know, this talk of unity in politics, if you don't have the unity, you can't just talk your way into it. It is necessary to have the power to physically create the unity. Once you, you do that, you do have to be able to talk people into going along with it. And if there was a state like the Roman Empire in, in the West, something like what Dante is saying would be a persuasive argument, but it might also be an unnecessary argument because if there was such a state, the emperor would clearly dominate the pope in the way that in the Eastern Roman Empire, as a point of fact, in the Middle Ages, the emperor does clearly dominate the patriarch. So to a large degree, the argument I always make about the West is that the fact that the states, that there's political decentralization, that you've splintered the states in the West, that is the fact which enables the papacy to have the influence that it has. That's the fact that enables Catholicism to develop its specific doctrine. And if that set of political facts did not exist, if the Western empire did not collapse, if it continued in the way that the Eastern Empire continued, you would get a different theology out of that. You would have to get a different theology out of that because it would simply not be possible for the popes to assert the level of authority which they attempt to assert in the West and which they do not succeed in asserting in the long term in the West. Because it's right as this period is happening that you get the Avignon popes and the tremendous weakening of, of the papacy by the fact that the monarchs find a way to divide the papacy. Now there are two popes. Now there's not just one pope, there's a pope that lives in Avignon and there's a pope that lives in Rome, right? So they find a way to divide the papal authority through that mechanism. And then you have, of course, the rise of Protestantism as a, another way of, of splitting the authority. And you get an enormous number of different accounts of what's natural, both within Catholic thought, you have this intense debate between the followers of, of Aquinas and the people who like Averroes, those people you know, 
they like Averos, but they're saying, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic, but I think that the Catholic dogma should be more similar to that of Averos. You, know, you can have these d- disputes even within Catholicism, let alone if you start bringing in people who come at it from a Protestant direction, from an Islamic direction. And then you've also got uh, you know, the humanists that are going to come in during the Renaissance who are more straightforwardly and overtly opposed. And why are they able to be more straightforwardly and overtly opposed? Because during this period, the monarchs want to weaken papal authority because the monarchs are tired of papal intervention. So the monarchs are more likely to protect people who are critical of papal authority if they do it within certain bounds. Right? Dante is a big, big fan of the Holy Roman Emperor and is cheering the Holy Roman Emperor's invasion of Italy, attempted invasion of Italy. Because Dante, similar to Machiavelli, who will come at this later on, wants to unify politically Italy into one whole again, wants it reunified because he thinks it will be more peaceful if it's reunified, because he thinks that people living in Italy will be more able to focus on their spiritual and philosophical objectives if there's political unification, instead of this constant jockeying for power among the Italian city-states. So there's there's this uh, enormous amount of support for the Holy Roman Emperor here. And if you're a supporter of the Holy Roman Emperor, then the Holy Roman Emperor is going to like you and isn't going to want you to have your head chopped off. And so that's very often what happens. These guys who make arguments that bother the Pope, they flatter monarchs. And the monarchs are interested in revising the situation, and therefore interested in in promoting writers who help them revise the situation in their favor. That's what gradually happens. Is a monarch the closest thing Dante can get to the common good? Because it's not going to be democracy, even though that's how we kind of see it. It's def- it might not be an oligarchy, definitely not a tyranny, but we would see the monarch as a tyranny. Yeah, so the, the kind of, the usual argument during this period is that if you divide political authority, then that allows for competition, political competition among people. If there's political competition among people, then people are caught up in the political competition. And therefore, they are not able to pursue the ends which the state exists to enable them to pursue. Now, that's an argument that is made in different ways in both the Western, the former Western Empire and in the Eastern Empire. In the case of the Eastern Roman Empire, drawing on Plato and drawing on the Republic, it's argued that the Byzantine emperor is substantively a source of unity and a source of peace, and therefore a source of this spiritual opportunity. In the case of the West, it's unclear who should be performing this role. As you get to this period, there are the, the church and a number of different states are in a position of competing for having this kind of singular role. And there's an interest in somebody establishing themselves, but for any one of them to establish themselves, the others would have to give up, right? And so, you know, Competition gets in the way of it, and the great power competition in Western Europe leads to a series of endemic wars in Western Europe, which leads to the militarization of Western European states, eventually resulting in their colonization of the whole freaking world. This prolonged competition where nobody wins. It's a very strange thing that happens in Western Europe. Usually, 
when you have this kind of competition among states, somebody wins that competition and establishes a larger empire. You know, if you look at Persian history, at Chinese history, you do not get sustained competition among half a dozen states in Persia or half a dozen states in China for very long periods of time, generally. Relatively quickly, it condenses down into just two or three and then into one dynasty that rules for an extended period of time. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, no such dynasty reemerges in Western Europe. So you're in this long, lengthy period of competition. And it's in part because you get a kind of, of gridlock. There are too many sources of authority in Europe with enough power to prevent the others from winning, but not enough power to win outright. At the time, would Europeans think of themselves as more enlightened as the empires? in the sense that the laws serve the people more. I would say at the time, you don't really even have much of a concept of Europe of course, in yeah. Europe, right? You have a, a concept of a kind of Catholic world, Catholic world, a concept of, of Christendom taken as a whole, uh, but you don't necessarily have people thinking of themselves as European. That's a later development. Uh, during this period, you would have, uh, you know, also, it's, it's going to depend a lot on class. Certainly, if you're a peasant, you're not going to think of yourself as very much of anything apart from somebody who lives in a particular village. You're uh, not going to be reading these texts. You're not going to be aware of the concept of enlightenment. You're not going to be literate. Uh, and you've also got a chunk of people who could read in their local language, but would not be able to read Greek or Latin. And interestingly, Dante chooses to write some of his texts in Italian so that they can be read by this larger audience. And some people argue it's in part because Dante wants to make his work accessible to women, because Dante was quite fond of women. And that by writing in Italian, since women are not given Latin education, uh, women could potentially read some of his work. But De Monarchia, as the title would indicate, is written in Latin because it's a political theory work. Uh, and it's intended to intervene in these very serious disputes about authority. And therefore, it has to be written in the very serious language of the time. But some of the, the less serious work, Dante writes, in part to make philosophical knowledge uh, and, and teachings more accessible. And he does that by writing in Italian. So you have a kind of upper class that is still carrying out its conversations in Latin in the kind of cosmopolitan language of the old empire that is kind of thinking of itself as a fragmented old empire, right? Fragmented, but kind of trying to come back together, maybe in some way, shape or form, but there's too much disagreement on what that coming together should look like, on what form it should take for it to obtain. And that's what you've got in the elite. But most ordinary people are not thinking of themselves as meaningfully part of any of that. No, but there would be gossip maybe about other empires or like about how just it was in foreign lands or things like that. Well, you know, there, there's certainly talk of, of other states, largely in a kind of contemptuous posture, because after the Great Schism happens, that's way back in the 11th century, after the Great Schism happens, 
there is a very negative attitude in the West toward the Eastern Roman Empire. The term Byzantine is a Western term of abuse for the Eastern Roman Empire. It is not the term that the Eastern Romans used for themselves. They regarded themselves as simply the Roman Empire, right? But once you create the Holy Roman Empire, then you have a dispute about who the real heir to the to Rome is. And the Holy Roman Empire uh, does not want to acknowledge the Byzantine Eastern Roman claim. And so the term Byzantine is a way of, of denigrating the Eastern Roman Empire. It's a term we, we still use. Hmm. But you know, in, in English, if you use Byzantine as an adjective, it means a, a dizzyingly complex, you know, almost Kafka-esque system. Yeah, Byzantine chain. Yeah. Yeah. There's another parallel, what you were saying with modern times about cosmopolitanism being a bit elitist as well. Or being associated yeah, yeah. with elites or practiced by elites, even though it's for everyone ostensibly. Yes, it's for everyone ostensibly. But the only way that you could have you know, th these kinds of cosmopolitan attitudes is to be in some way participating in European level discussion. And I use the word European level, and it's not really even the right word to use. Uh, Catholic, Catholic level or uh, Western Christendom level discussion. That discussion occurs in Latin. If you don't read Latin, if you don't write in Latin, you cannot participate in that discussion. And part of why it, you can have this idea of a kind of unified elite is that the unified elite can talk to each other in a single language. They all speak Latin. And you know, also, imperial projects during this time were never really intended to be something for peasants. If you think about the old Roman Empire, it's really, you know, almost a, a union of cities. When a Roman emperor would first come to power, there was a, a kind of acclamation gift tax where each of the cities to signal that it acknowledges and recognizes the new emperor would send a gift to the emperor. And I call it a gift tax because it was expected and it was really obligatory, but also it was obligatory that you treat it like it wasn't. <laughs> Right, so it's it's obligatory that you behave as if uh, you're you're just sending a gift because you are appreciative that there's a new emperor, right? And the cities would often compete with each other for imperial favor by giving you know, larger gifts, right? So the cities are largely administered by the local elites in those cities, but they are all of those elites are sending their kids to the Roman schools to learn Latin. They all speak Latin. They all carry on their conversations in Latin, and over the life of the empire, they Romanize in the sense that they become completely conversant in Latin discourses and in Latin discussions of, of Latin writers. So the whole ruling class in the Roman Empire is going to know Latin at minimum uh, and, and uh, you know, in the Western half, Latin at minimum and potentially Greek, and in the Eastern half, Greek at minimum and potentially Latin. Latin was even in the Eastern Roman Empire, the dominant political language until relatively, relatively late in the imperial period. So you, you've, you've got to know that. Now, if you're not somebody who speaks those languages, the accessibility of all of this to you is going to be pretty limited. But in the Middle Ages, peasants were not very effective at asserting themselves politically. Peasant rebellions had a very, very poor success rate. Peasant rebellions usually only succeeded in cases where there's already a lot of strife and uh, a power vacuum. So, for instance, one of the famous peasant rebellions uh, in the Eastern Roman Empire is an attempt in Thessalonica in the 1340s to establish a commune, 
like a communal uh, peasant socialist. Yeah. And using the word socialist is very anachronistic, but a kind of uh, peasant commune state in Thessalonica, a kind of democratic Thessalonica would be, I think, a more period accurate way of referring to it. But it only happens because during the period of 1341 to 1347, there's a civil war that tears apart the Eastern Roman Empire. And over the course of that civil war, much of the territory of the Eastern Roman Empire is lost to the kingdom of Serbia, which exploits the situation to invade. Uh, and by the time the civil war is over, you have a tiny Eastern Roman rump state and the Balkans are ready to be invaded by the Ottomans. Now, those are the kinds of situations where peasants manage to form some kind of, of political order, but it usually only lasts a handful of years in the case of, of Thessalonica, six or seven years, and then uh, it's, it's done. So they're not really worried too much about legitimating authority to the peasants that the job of getting the peasants to obey is delegated to the local elites. So if you have uh, local elites in a city, uh, if you're talking about a kind of castle town or a, a bishopric, there's going to be a bishop or there's going to be some kind of lord that is the local face of authority in the area. It's that person's job to keep order in the local area. It's that person's job to personify public institutions to the peasants in a way which compels the peasants to obey. That can be done by setting a positive example and, and trying to be virtuous and noble. It can also be done by just oppressing the peasants and being cruel to them and making it so that they uh, fear you. There are lots of different strategies that lords and bishops use during this period to keep their peasants in line, but that's their job. So if you're a king or an emperor, you're mainly worried about legitimating yourself to these lords and bishops. You want the lords and bishops to do the work of legitimating you to the peasants. So there are kind of these, you know, because it's a vassal structure, it's a feudal structure, there are these levels of justification. And your main role is to justify yourself to the people on the level below you. And then it's their role to justify the system to the people below them, right? So you don't have the same legitimation story being told to everybody in the society. What you have is a story that is for an, an educated elite, which consists mainly of nobles and bishops and priests, right? And then a further story that's for people who, you know, maybe they can read Italian, but they wouldn't read Latin. And then a further story that's for people who uh, don't read at all. And it's told at, at differing levels. Usually when we talk about the history of political thought, we're talking about those top level stories that are for the people who are educated, because those are the stories that are, that you really need if you're a king or an emperor to get the people immediately below you to go along. And usually when you get a period of endemic civil war, it's driven by the people on the level immediately below the king or the emperor. It's going to be driven by the powerful lords or the powerful bishops who aren't going along with that leading story. You don't usually have to worry in this period so much about ordinary people revolting against the local elites. And you see this very much in the way that the European Union, I think, is constructed. It is constructed very much to appeal to the more cosmopolitan elements of European states. And it has a harder time talking to people who you know, don't you know, read and, and write and speak English, for instance, uh, or read and write or, and speak German or maybe French. You know, if you don't speak one of the leading languages of Europe, it has a harder time talking to you. It makes an effort to translate what it's saying into your language to bring you along. But you're not somebody who is going to university in a foreign country and taking English language courses or 
German or French language courses. Uh, and you, you've got uh, you know, also the economic benefits of the European Union tend to go disproportionately to particular populations with particular levels of education living in particular regions. So you know, there's always, with these cosmopolitan projects, this problem of, of levels of discussion. Because when you get that big, it's hard to have a direct conversation from the leadership to the ordinary person who has the kind of lowest common denominator level of education in the state. So you get these mediating layers. And th the trouble is oftentimes you're, you have to focus so much on having a conversation that can get the level below you to agree that if the lower levels are not being taken care of, things go radically wrong. And we've talked about this before on the show in episodes with Edmund, where we've talked about the French Revolution and the situation in pre-revolutionary France, where the nobles and the priests are increasingly focused on courting the Bourbon's favor. And so they're spending a lot of time in Paris and they're spending a lot of time trying to influence the kings of France. And they're not so much in their local areas. And they're not so much engaged with conditions on the ground in ordinary French villages and towns. A lot of these unification projects, as they centralize, the regions drop out. And what made the original Roman Empire successful in, in terms of you know, successes, in terms of lasting a long time, maintaining legitimacy for a long time, is that it took care of these local regions, took care of these local areas, invested a lot in building up remote provinces, in giving them amenities that you would associate with the core. And also the fact that you have a society where you have peasants, you have slaves, you have people who are really not in a position to contest. Whereas in the modern European Union, you have a democratic system, which gives a lot of ordinary people a way of expressing their disapproval with European politics through kind of protest voting for wreckers who want to tear the thing up. And that's what we've tended to see in recent decades. So it's still public welfare insofar as it gives the people on the periphery of the empire some kind of good standards of living, even though there's a lot of personal injustice and things like that, and governors can abuse the people. But so long, because he says that wars were waged for the benefit of all, including the people who have no say. So, as in the people who fight them. Uh, and in the original Roman Empire, it was straightforwardly justified this way. If the Roman Empire achieves a victory in some part of the empire, if it's a big victory, the emperor would often demand a gift tax from everybody. Oh, so that's what it means. Yeah, as a, yeah, as a way of going, yes, we, we appreciate that victory because that victory is good for everybody. And it's a way of reminding everybody in every corner that a victory somewhere is their victory, even if it occurs very, very far away from them in a way that's hard for them to really relate to spatially. But that's obviously a kind of double speak to a lot of people, or a bit disingenuous. So does that mean that the yeah, whole- Yeah, it would be to peasants, but peasants are not in the conversation. Peasants are not even able to read the law. No. <laughs> right? But and now we have a society where people can read and people can participate, even if they have relatively low levels of education, they can participate to a point. And so you have a more demanding standard of legitimation in a contemporary society than you used to have back then. And that's why some of these arguments that we just regard as kind of ridiculous, you know, really, would you try to make that argument to peasant and expect the peasant to agree? Oh, yeah, the emperor is legitimate because Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus. You know, so you better obey the contemporary Holy Roman Empire emperor 1300 years later, because 
1300 years ago, Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus. Do you really expect you know, ordinary people to go along with something like that? And Dante's argument is not the dominant version or, or the most successful version of this divine right of kings argument. But it is an early example and a particularly noteworthy example because of how forthright it is and how straightforwardly imperialist it is and how uh, aggressively cosmopolitan it is for the period. Uh, all of that is, is really remarkable. And of course, you know, what you end up getting out of the divine right of kings argument is the age of absolutism, these extremely powerful monarchs, extremely powerful monarchs who are not in any way limited by priests or by nobles. Uh, and they push it so far that it gets to a point where the lower orders just can't tolerate it. And you get the English Civil War, you get the French Revolution, because again, you get you get overreach and you get a kind of ideological overreach. And this is the thing. If, if the rulers start to drink their own Kool-Aid, if they believe their legitimation stories too much and think that those stories are really true, then they will sometimes do things that rile up too much opposition going, well, you can't disagree with what I'm doing because I'm completely legitimate. Obviously, I am, say, I was elected, so you have to listen to me. Or I have a divine right, so you've got to do it. Uh, but that isn't how political power actually works. The story is only going to be believable as long as there's some relationship between what the state is doing and what people are you know, expecting from it. And the stories can be used to lower expectations or manage expectations. But at a certain point, if you contradict what people are expecting uh, really, really heavily, no amount of ideology can paper over that contradiction if you really contradict people's expectations. And that's where states sometimes get into trouble. They just start to, uh, to think that their legitimation narrative is, is too powerful and too strong. They think that they are, are unstoppable and that their subjects will continue to obey them no matter how ridiculous it gets. And that's where you start to get into really real trouble politically. Oftentimes, a legitimation story fails because it is too successful. And so the people who are having their power justified by it become overconfident, and they try to do things that the story is not strong enough to support. Like when? Because the legitimation stories of medieval time look a bit crazy, but it makes sense what you were saying. If the expectations have changed, they, maybe that's why we can call them crazy. Whereas the ones nowadays, we don't fully see them as mad yet because we're not out of the conditions that, you know that cause us to ask yeah, for these you things. Yeah, if you think about you know, King Charles and King Charles' you know, aggressive taxation and, and uh, you know, just closing parliament and opening parliament whenever he kind of saw fit uh, and going, well, I'm the king, I have divine right of kings, I can do these things. At a certain point, the nobles go, yeah, we're not going to continue to believe divine right of kings if it enables this kind of behavior because this kind of behavior is too much out of alignment with what we are accustomed to as kind of normal or acceptable behavior. So Charles pushes it too hard. He believes it too much. And Charles even writes you know, substantive political theory arguments for divine right of kings you know, because he really thinks it ought to enable him to do the things that he's trying to do. He expects too much out of a legitimation narrative. Legitimation narratives can get people to lower their expectations a bit or to accept things they wouldn't otherwise accept to a degree. But there's a limit to how much work they can do. If you immiserate people, 
if you treat them in a way that they really are not able to deal with psychologically, they start to resent the system. And then that resentment is going to take some kind of, of form politically. It's going to manifest in some way, and that's going to be inconvenient. Similar kind of thing recently with the, the, you know, the 90s and this period of enormous confidence in liberal democracy following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the kind of Fukuyamaist end of history, that kind of exuberance about the fundamental strengths of the system results in you know, economic policies that make life harder for regular people because there isn't really any thinking that those regular people have any way of politically causing trouble. So if you think, well, it's impossible for anybody to want any other system apart from this because the alternatives to it have so comprehensively and brazenly failed that you know, nobody's going to support any other system. Therefore, you know, we don't have to raise wages and we don't have to pay for robust public services. And all of this money can be kind of given back to the wealthier sections of society because the lower orders have no alternative system they could impose. What are they going to be? Communists? The Soviet Union failed. That's ridiculous. What are they going to be? Fascists? Nazi Germany failed. That's ridiculous. So if people have no alternative but to be liberal Democrats, then you don't have to give them as much to persuade them to support the state. And so coming out of the 90s, the attitude is, well, since the Soviet project failed, there's no real competition. And therefore, there's no real need to have the state be so generous. Uh, and so you get this austerity politics, you get this politics of cutting things, but eventually that causes people's lives to not go the way that they expect them to go. And when people's lives go in radically different ways from the ways they expect, they get resentful and they cause trouble. And we've been seeing that trouble more and more as the years go by. People might disagree when you say Things like after the Soviet Union collapsed, governments wouldn't have to spend so much on the public and they could get away with these sort of things. There wasn't like one voice, like a conspiracy telling them, okay, it's okay to defund stuff now. Or or just like policymakers thinking this universally in different places at different times. It's more like, as you said, like they're looking, what's the alternative? Or is there a com competitor? Yeah. Is that competition? Yeah, like if you if you look at the post-war era, there were a lot of people in in liberal democracies who believed that the Soviet Union was a legitimate competitor, that it might outcompete and beat liberal democracy. And there was a lot of concern that particular states would elect communists or socialists and that those states would flip and join the Soviet Union. And so there was a concerted effort made to bribe those populations into remaining loyal with social programs, social benefits funded by the United States, especially in Europe, because it was the European states that were perceived to be the most likely to flip, their loyalty needed to be secured. And the way that the European states' loyalty was secured was by funding the expansion of social programs in these war-torn countries. You would think these countries would not have any money for social programs because they'd have to rebuild, but the United States encouraged an enormous amount of investment into Western European economies to quickly restabilize them, get them prosperous, get their populations comfortable. And in the post-war era, people got social programs that they never would have imagined when they were children, say in the 20s or 30s, they would have gotten. They got much more generous social programs than they could have possibly expected. So if you're getting much more out of the state than you could have possibly expected, that tends to 
induce quite a substantial level of loyalty for a significant period of time, at least until that becomes the new normal. And you then start to go, well, now I want other things to, to feel like the state is really doing something for me. After the Soviet Union collapses, those fears about the Soviet Union, which I think were gradually waning anyway in the 70s and 80s, it was becoming more and more obvious that Western states were not going to become communist states. They were not going to defect to the Soviet bloc, but there was still a significant amount of worrying about it in the 70s and 80s. From the 90s on, there's just no worrying about that. There's no concern about that. And that's not to say that everybody comes together and you know they have some kind of meeting. But in the individual policymakers' minds, this, we have to make sure that people don't defect logic is just not present. There's no reason for it to be present. So it leads to different calculations about what's politically tenable. And in the near term, you know, it is possible to substantially erode programs without people adopting some alternative political system or, or promoting some alternative view. It certainly is possible to a point. But if you just do that and you just keep doing it on and on and on to the point where now people's lives are going much worse than they thought they would go, then people are going to start being resentful and expressing that resentment in a variety of ways. And it looks difficult to resolve that without kind of future wars between great powers. But I guess the thing that Dante was getting at is that eventually it would it would be better if all the competition is kind of just is overlooked by something so much more powerful than everything else. So we have that cosmopolitan world and I think we still have that ideal with one world government. And when you yeah, say a lot of people still have it. Like yeah. Facebook should be centralized, I, things like that. It's the idea that this one authority should look over all the others, so none can be more powerful than the other. There are there are different logics to it. You know, if your goal is to prevent conflict, then having one central authority is very effective in preventing conflict. If your goal is to hold the authority to account, then some role for competition is important because if you don't have any role for political competition, then it's very difficult to hold the central authority to account. The thing is that competition can lead to war <laughs> and the unity that prevents war uh, can make it so that the authority is unaccount uh, unaccountable. And you know, this is where you get back into kind of Edmund Wilson style, you know, war makes trade and trade makes war logic, where the things you do to solve one problem in politics often give you a different problem. And so there are you know, problems that cosmopolitanism solves. And if you're living in a medieval society that's war-torn, cosmopolitanism and unification are very attractive as solutions to that. If you're living in a heavily united society, you get frustrated by the fact that you can't meaningfully challenge the authorities, that you can't do a diversity of different things. Now, I think back to the situation in the 300s in the Roman dominant, in the, you know, century of gold, where a lot of young Roman elites didn't want to get involved in imperial institutions because they saw them as, as sclerotic and undynamic and stagnant and not really you know, amenable to being used in a diverse array of ways. And so instead, they became involved in the church, and many of them became bishops, and some of them became desert hermits who went and, and had revelatory experiences in the desert and then brought those back to their communities. And for those people, it was you know, more important to be part of an institution that was dynamic and new and growing and presented new opportunities uh, than to be part of something that was sclerotic. Uh, 
And, and that's the thing. If you're in a period of great unity, people get very bored and people get very annoyed with the fact that nothing they do seems to meaningfully change what happens. But if you want the things that particular people do, do to change what happens, then you end up embracing a structure that leads to a lot of competition. Some of that competition gets hot and you have conflict. You have religious conflict. You have political conflict. And, and this is the... You know, the stuck thing that we get we get into, and you, know, you gotta you gotta kind of balance between these different institutions and structures. They have different advantages and different disadvantages, and and so often whichever disadvantage is sticking out to us, we rush to embrace the opposite advantage. As in, not enough peace, more accountability, or too much accountability, you need more peace. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, depending on what you see around you, you know, people will underrate order or they will underrate accountability. Hmm. You know, people will go, there's too much disorder, give me a centralized state, regardless of, you know, okay, it might be inconvenient. Hobbes makes this argument. You know, the, what the monarch does may be inconvenient, you may not like it, who cares? Let's put an end to conflict because you know, death is terrifying and let's not die. Everybody's been dying, it's horrifying, let's just stop. Who cares? It's inconvenient, so what? And on the other side, you have people who live in these heavily unified states, like, like Nietzsche living under the Kaiserreich, who get so aggravated with the culture comp and with the uniformity and staleness of the Kaiserreich that he wants all of the nation states to be destroyed in a giant war that will bring back the city-state and the opportunity for individuals to pursue glorious lives, right? That, you, know, you can be at very opposite ends of this spectrum. Uh, but the difficulty is how do you combine these different advantages together in one institutional framework that can be at once the one thing and then at once the other thing, depending on what it needs to be? How do you have an institution that can flexibly adapt without having to collapse and be completely reconstituted? How would one centralized social media achieve that without becoming like a police state? Right. Yeah. This is a, this is the thing. When we don't have uh, centralized social media, you know, to use your example, we get a bunch of different problems that come from different oligarchs you know, competing with each other to squeeze money out of the people who use their social media networks, selling their information to different people as a way of squeezing money out of, of what they've got, uh, and then also being vulnerable to competitive pressure to get support from the media, get support from regulators. So therefore, constantly intervening in the discourse on social media to try to make mainstream media happy or to try to make political elites happy. You get a lot of that from you know, private companies because they're in competition with each other, because they worry about uh, interventions from the media or interventions from regulators that might cause people to leave or abandon their, their websites. If you centralize it all under one state, you don't have some of those consequences of competition, but you then have to worry about the state using social media as a way of collecting intelligence on people. You know, in in uh, the way that the Canadian government, it's been revealed, had tracking data on something like 87% of the people who used one of their COVID track and trace apps and, and uh, use that data in ways that would, uh, would shock and horrify a lot of ordinary citizens. Uh, yeah, this this is the difficulty. Can you build a social a model of social media that avoids the problems that come with having multiple different social media oligarchs in competition with each other, but also avoids the problems of of a monopolistic state that uses that data to spy on citizens? You you've got to construct some kind of way of avoiding 
the negatives that go with both. And what people instead tend to do is they'll look at one of the set of negatives and ignore the other. So they'll go, well, if you had a state that ran social media, these things could happen. Therefore, we have to have this decentralized type of social media that is horrible in other different ways, uh, or they'll make the reverse argument. And so what you end up getting is arguments for bad status quos that come out of fears of the alternative instead of, you know, okay, let's do the work. If we really want to have a, a kind of social media that doesn't have either of these problems, what would it have to look like? How would we have to institutionally structure it? Okay, but, but if there are undesirable outcomes that are kind of unavoidable at this point, like mass surveillance, where, whether it's by a state or by a company, it's going to be someone doing it. Wouldn't your argument earlier apply, which is what many people have said, which is ambition checks ambition. So obviously better to have multiple and a federation style as opposed to one totalitarian style, where at least there's some room for competing you know, versions that might be better. Well, yeah, if, if there are in fact that level of competing versions, I think what we have here is a kind of oligopolistic social media. So it's not like there's real competition. Oftentimes the argument's made that there's competition. So say you get kicked off of Facebook or Twitter, that's no big deal. You can just go somewhere else. But in practice, there's only a handful of really influential social media networks. Some of them are owned by the same company. Facebook uh, and Instagram are both part of the metaverse, right? So I, I don't think there's true competition in social media, in part because true competition is disadvantageous. Part of the point of social media is to have everybody on the same platform so you can talk to everybody all at once. So if you had real competition in social media, it wouldn't work very well because everybody wouldn't be all in the same place. So you wouldn't be able to talk to everybody all at once. The whole point is to be able to talk to everybody all at once. So we don't actually want real competition in social media, right? At the same time, when you get this oligopoly, then because the state isn't you know, kicking people off of social media, but private companies are doing it, a kind of censorship can be laundered through the fact that private companies are responsible for it. Whereas if, say, you had a state social media company and the state social media company was kicking people off of social media, you could make a much more straightforward free speech objection to that. You can't do that when it's in the hands of three or four different private oligopolies in this oligopoly, right? So you know, there, there are, again, you know, advantages and disadvantages here. If you s do the trust busting and you split social media up into a much larger number of companies, that's not going to be very useful to people. And gradually, people are all going to gather onto two or three of the ones that you've split apart. If you broke Facebook into 10 social networks, eventually everybody would end up on one of them again. And the fact that it's harder for the state to be the bad guy without because of the accountability is that why dante's kind of saying this emperor this universal temporal monarch it, it's harder for them to be spellbound by greed and injustice and desire and lust and all these things that pervert justice because they have no one to compete with so they don't think of their individual interest as dis as distinct from their role uh, and a similar argument is made by hobbes that to some degree you limit bad behavior because a lot of that bad behavior comes out of the competition with other people of the same rank and a kind of envy, a quest for having more status or having more money than other people at the same rank. Because the emperor sits above everybody else, the emperor doesn't have those particular impulses. Now, that's not to say that the emperor might have other character traits that could be a problem, but envy hmm. uh, and greed often comes out of envy is not an issue for an emperor who is above everybody. 
And that is one of the arguments they make for the for having a single ruler. It's the point that if they were to start acting like all these envious kings below them, they would no longer be the total order. They would be a partial order. They would lose the whole definition of what it means. to Right. If an emperor has someone to be envious of, then an emperor is not very powerful. If there's somebody that the emperor is envying in the nobility or in the priesthood, then the emperor is not that strong. Is it? That's not to say that the emperor might you know, envy the personal traits of somebody. Maybe the emperor envies the fact that somebody's good at jousting. I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's quite... But politically, the emperor should not envy anybody politically. Of course, they could start acting out and, you know, just not caring about the, the common good and accumulating riches like they always kind of have done. But I guess... Yeah, in... In the Eastern Roman Empire, where you have a notion of imperial rule, but it's linked to a kind of platonic notion of the philosopher king, if the emperor doesn't appear virtuous in important senses, that can result in the loss of imperial authority. So you get a lot of coups and civil wars in the Eastern Roman Empire, because if the emperor doesn't play this very charismatic role... Of, of having all of these virtues and being this philosopher king, then the narrative kind of breaks down. And you see a lot of this in, in the Roman Empire in general, in the Principate, this notion of a, an emperor having the charisma of the divine Augustus and having to behave like he's got the charisma of the divine Augustus. And if he fails to behave that way, if he isn't successful and if he isn't virtuous, then that causes people to potentially think about a usurper as a better option. Because the commitment is to the idea that there should be a consensus on a single person as emperor, but that that consensus can break down and legitimately can break down if the emperor doesn't behave like an emperor. So that the concord, it's a concord in which the emperor will act like an emperor. And in return for the emperor acting like an emperor, everybody will treat the emperor as an emperor. But if the emperor doesn't act like an emperor, then a usurper can be legitimate. If a usurper acts more like an emperor than the emperor himself, then the usurper can be the emperor because he's behaving like the emperor if there is a consensus and a concord. And that's the thing about Eastern Roman political theory. There is a notion of consensus in it. It is not just a, a hereditary bloodline-based system. You have to act like the emperor to be seen as the emperor. And so if you have an emperor that behaves very badly, generally that emperor will be removed because the respect is to the office and not necessarily the person. Is that, that, that's still kind of applying today. Well, if you look at divine right arguments in the West, the Western divine right argument doesn't leave as much room for disposing of a bad emperor. And the Habesian argument for monarchy doesn't leave as much room for disposing of a bad emperor, in part because... Hobbes's argument is meant to prevent civil conflict. And the old Roman imperial legitimation mechanics, in, to some degree, build civil war in as an important feature. If you have a bad emperor who is incompetent as a commander and as an administrator, you need there to be some mechanism to get rid of that person. And so in the Eastern Roman Empire, this idea of there being a consensus on the emperor that's based on the emperor acting like an emperor is a mechanic for getting rid of a bad emperor. And so I, that's something I emphasize because oftentimes when people think about 
monarchism. They think of it as a singular kind of political theory, as just being a divine right thing or just being a Habesian absolutist thing. But there's also the monarchism of uh, you know, a pope and a, and a king having a kind of, of mutual interplay. Uh, there's the monarchism of the Roman Empire in which it's based on a notion of a consensus, that the, there's a popular consensus on the identity of the emperor. There are a lot of different ways to legitimate and substantiate monarchy, and in part because monarchy is a mostly dead category of political theory these days, most people are not monarchists, there isn't much discussion of all of the different ways it can be done, and most of the time when we talk about monarchy, we just kind of laugh at it because all of these different stories strike us as implausible today. But there were a lot of different ways of, of doing it. Uh, and some of those are more dynamic and make it easier to get rid of a bad emperor, and some of them are not and are more based on peace. The, the Eastern Roman system has a level of competition in it because if you have a general who behaves more like an emperor than the emperor himself, that is suggestive that perhaps that person should be emperor. And there's a mechanism, albeit a bloody mechanism, for making that occur. In the Western case, more of a privilege is put on preventing civil conflict, and the consequence of that is bad kings. So we think of your know, monarchy's principal weakness is bad kings, but in the Eastern Roman Empire, the principal weakness of it is civil conflict when the emperor is bad, and the possibility that if that conflict drags on for too long, outside states might exploit that situation. And the two really fatal episodes in the history of the Eastern Roman Empire the Fourth Crusade, and then that civil war of 1341 to 1347, both are fatal because a Western state intervenes in Eastern Roman politics. The Crusaders take advantage of the civil conflict to take Constantinople and set up the Latin Empire. And then the Serbs take advantage of the conflict in the 1340s to take a lot of Byzantine territory for themselves, ultimately creating a situation in which both parties will lose to the Ottomans. Anything else before we wrap up? I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said, but not to mine currently. Oh, yeah. so much. Yeah, that was that was fun. Uh, good little little talk about Dante. And I think we'll we'll probably do another one of these in a couple of weeks. I'm having a good time, and and we're making them nice and tight. We're not going on for quite as long as we used to. I think this is a good thing. But of course, if you disagree, dear listener, let me know. If you'd rather we talk for two hours, let me know. <laughs> But thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. See you.